When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You're watching CNN. I'm Julia Chasley in New York. Putin has a price to pay, a high price to pay for brutal aggression. The words of European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen as she announced a sixth round of sanctions against Russia. The EU is now proposing a ban on Russian oil imports and the removal of Russia's biggest bank from the SWIFT payment network. The package of measures must be approved by all EU member states. We'll have more on this shortly. Meanwhile, in Ukraine, heavy battles are being fought at the Azovstal steel plant. According to Mariupol's mayor, he says contact has been lost with the last Ukrainian defenders there. Hundreds of civilians remain trapped, although officials say more evacuations are underway. A convoy of buses are currently making the 140-mile journey northwest to Zaporizhia in efforts led by the UN and the Red Cross. Officials say private vehicles will be able to join them. And new video shows Ukrainian forces targeting Russian military positions on Snake Island using a drone. The strikes appear to land between a building and a communications tower. Another location appears to have housed explosives. It's unclear exactly when the attacks took place, though CNN has geolocated and verified the video as authentic. Later in the show, we'll hear from the CEO of drone manufacturer Aerovironment on how its technology is changing the face of war. For now, let's talk EU sanctions package six with Claire Sebastian. Claire, the EU Commission president pulling no punches. Just take a listen. This sends another important signal to all perpetrators of the Kremlin. We know who you are. We will hold you accountable. You're not getting away with this. Putin must pay a price, a high price for his brutal aggression. Claire, we have to be specific. This is an oil embargo. It's not gas, which, of course, has the greater power, but it is still something very important. The question is, are all nations on board? No, is the answer to that, Mm. Julia. Yes, this is one of, if not the most powerful weapon uh, that the EU is set to deploy against Russia in its sort of economic war that it's been waging. But they do need unanimity in the council. Discussions are going on right now. And we know that... For example, Hungary has said all along that they do not want to bring in an embargo on Russian energy. They say they just cannot do without it. So reliant are they on this. Uh, And we have a a somewhat ominous tweet from the government spokesperson today, Zoltan Kovacs, has said we don't see any plans or guarantees on how we don't see any plans or guarantees on how a transition could be managed based on the current proposals, he said, and how Hungary's energy security would be guaranteed. So despite reports, Julia, that that perhaps there could be an exemption for Hungary and, and possibly also Slovakia, which is very reliant on Russian energy, perhaps an extension of this phased out uh, embargo. Uh, He's seeming to suggest that they are not currently seeing anything that would be satisfactory to them in these proposals. We won't know, of course, uh, until we see the final text uh, and until perhaps uh, the EU Council uh, adopts this, which will come after anonymity. So it's still not clear as of yet, but it's not looking like unity right now. 
and the ambassador's meeting today as well, so we'll watch to see what they say. Um, the EU's also, I saw, looking at ways perhaps to provide military support to neighbouring Moldova as well. Clearly, I'm sure they're going to want to be very careful to make this look like defence, not offence, but an interesting move nonetheless. Yeah, they're being careful what they say here. This came from EU Council President Charles Michel, who, who met uh, with uh, Moldova's president uh, today. He said that some decisions have already been taken to enhance support in the fields of the likes of logistics and cyber defense, but he wouldn't go any further than that. He said uh, at risk of, of escalation. The context here, if you can see, uh, is that Moldova obviously borders Ukraine. The, the government in Moldova is pro-EU, but there is a pro-Russian separatist territory called Transnistria, which borders Ukraine. There have been some explosions in that territory recently, which sort of both sides has blamed on each other. But there was a comment cited by state media from a Russian general recently who said that control of the southern border of Ukraine could give them access to Transnistria. And that has raised concerns, Julia, that Russia may open up another front in this conflict. So clearly something that the EU wants to try to sort of buffer Moldova against. Yes, and this time acting early, perhaps, rather than late. Claire Sebastian, thank you for that. Now, back to that breaking news this morning. Mariupol's mayor says heavy battles have broken out at the Azovstal steel plant and contact has been lost with Ukrainian defenders. Scott McLean is in Lviv and joins us with the latest. Scott, what more do we know about the situation there? Clearly, it's at the same time as those evacuation attempts continue. Yeah, exactly, Julia. So first on the evacuation tents, a local official said earlier today that there are some convoys moving out of the city. They'll make several stops en route to Zaporizhia. What was not made clear, though, is whether or not anyone on the on those convoys is coming from the Azovstal steel plant. People were evacuated from there over over the weekend, more than 100 people. They just arrived in Zaporizhia yesterday. Um, but at this stage, there is no indication that there's going to be a second round of evacuations, and there are still perhaps hundreds of people trapped inside of that steel plant. The mayor of Mariupol saying just today, Julie, that there are 30 children in there and making the point that people continue to die, including two young women, we're not entirely certain of their ages, but who were killed uh, earlier this week in some of the, uh, the strikes on that site. Uh, and so it, even though people are underground, given the level of bombardment, given the fact that there's rubble in parts of it that are caving in, it is anything but safe at this stage of the game. And the mayor said that things are only getting worse. He says that the Russians are now hitting it with artillery, tanks, uh, air, air uh, bombing as well. And they've even moved a ship closer to uh, the plant, which is on the coast of Mariupol. Uh, and now they're hitting it using that ship as well. Um, and so the mayor says that he has lost contact with the fighters on the ground. That is certainly not a good sign for those evacuation corridors right now, Julia. No, one would presume they're busy as well uh, in, in defense. Um, Scott, very quickly, I want to ask you about your experience being in Lviv last night. There were explosions there, too. Yeah, that's right. So these came uh, just before dark. Uh, I heard three explosions myself. Um, and the sound was absolutely unmistakable. We're in the cen center of the city. It turns out the closest one was about four miles here, six kilometers roughly uh, from this area. There were strikes in the east and the south and the west. And shortly after those, uh, those explosions were heard, you could hear the dark smoke rising on the horizon in several different directions. It turns out that these were uh, electrical power substations. The one that we were at was right next to a set of rail tracks. The rail tracks themselves, it appears, were not actually damaged, but 
the power was lost to large swaths of the city, according to the mayor, who says that it has now all been restored. There were also briefly some issues with water because uh, that those power stations supplied power to the uh, pumping stations, which provide the water for the city. The city, before the war, had already uh, built a backup generator for those, so the water was turned on pretty quickly. The power now also on as well. It appears, at least according to the Pentagon spokesperson, that the Russians are trying their best to hit rail infrastructure um, to try to cut off perhaps movement east-west of weapons. The, the um, Moscow made it clear again today that any shipment of weapons that is moving throughout Ukraine, even if it is from NATO, that is fair game for airstrikes. And so it is uh, it is very likely we'll see these kind of strikes again, Julia. Yeah, and it's a reminder that wherever you are, um, nowhere is truly safe, particularly when we're talking about key infrastructure. Scott, quickly, some extraordinary comments from Pope Francis in an Italian newspaper interview um, telling the head of the Russian Orthodox Church not to be Putin's altar boy. What do we make of this? Yeah, there's a lot coming out of this uh, interview, Julia. Yesterday, uh, the Pope was talking about May 9th and his conversations with Viktor Orban of Hungary and the fact that he said that maybe the war would be over by May 9th. Now we have these revelations and the Pope's really striking criticism of the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church, who's found all kinds of reasons uh, to justify this war, essentially saying that it is uh, an extension of the culture clash between Russia and uh, the very liberal West, as Russia would put it. And so the Pope said that he had a conversation with him for about 40 minutes. For the first 20 minutes, he said that he listened while he was uh, telling him all these things and the reasons for justifying the war. And he said bluntly, look, um, we don't work for the state. We work for Jesus. And so um, making all of these justifications on behalf of Putin is not what we ought to be doing and that he shouldn't be Putin's altar boy, meaning that the head of the church obviously should re retain the power to make moral judgments on things not Vladimir Putin, Julia. Yes, all sorts of implications there. And I will say, I believe in the latest EU sanctions package number six, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church may be included uh, in those sanctions and, and targeted specifically. So we'll wait for more details on that. Scott, great to have you with us. Thank you. Scott McLean there, live you in bet. Lviv. Now, the UN says over 5.6 million people have fled Ukraine since the Russian invasion began. It expects that number to increase to more than 8 million people. The number of people displaced within the country even greater. Many who refuse to leave have already lost everything, including their homes, as Sam Kiley reports. Since Russian rockets destroyed her home and killed her brother, all she has left is her mother and her life. All at once, grads started falling one by one. There were explosions everywhere. Opposite the kitchen in a house, the windows and frame blew into a room. We are standing there. My brother was making the sign of the cross, and I am shouting. I turned away from him to look at the house, and then another rocket hit, and I was trapped under the rubble. I can't see my brother anymore. I fell, and I don't even know how I woke up and started pulling myself out. I'm all scratched and battered. I yelled, Vita, Vita, but he was gone. 
Ludmilla's home was flattened in Lysyshchensk during the battle for Rubizny, which is now in Russian hands. Putin's forces have been driving southeast along the Donetsk River and south from Izium. Russia's stated aim is to capture all of the Donbass, and that includes Luhansk and Donetsk provinces. The governor of Luhansk says that Ukraine can hold the Russians back, for now. But he says we need powerful long-range artillery, and that unfortunately is not here yet, and it could completely change the whole war. Without the heavy weapons already promised by the US and other Western allies, he says, the Russians will destroy everything with artillery and mortars. They destroy with aircraft, they use helicopters, they're just wiping everything off the face of the earth, so there's nothing left to hang on to. For Ukraine, this is an existential battle. Reinforcements are being rushed to the front lines, but there's no sign of the heavy weapons needed to block a Russian advance, much less reverse it. The doctor says Ludmilla will be moved west for more treatment, but her fate and that of her 96-year-old mother is unknown. We simply cannot physically handle so many wounded with such severe injuries, he says. This elderly woman, a victim of Russian shelling that morning, joins the ward. And more than 13 million other Ukrainians have fled their homes to escape Ludmilla's fate. I was brought here naked. I have nothing at all. No money, no documents, nothing. Yet her very survival is a small victory over Putin, because she's been neither beggared nor beaten. Sam Kiley, CNN, in Bakhmut. Okay, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A disturbing new video from Shanghai fueling accusations of police mismanagement and heavy-handedness amid China's COVID crisis. Police are seen barging into an apartment and removing two women who officials claim had tested positive for the disease. The women were sent to a quarantine centre. They said their tests were inconclusive. Selena Wang joins us now from Kunming, China, where she herself is in quarantine. Selena, I'm counting for you. It's day 12, though I know you don't need reminding. Um, you know, when you look at videos like that, it's no surprise they're being accused of, of heavy handedness, particularly as we start to see COVID numbers coming down, it seems, according to their data. Well, and what that video really points to is so many conversations I've had with mm. people in Shanghai, which is that they're not so much scared of getting COVID, but what's going to happen to them if they test positive, because all positive COVID cases in Shanghai, with no exception, are sent to government quarantine facilities. And many of them are in poor, unsanitary conditions with many, many beds crammed together. Not exactly a place where you want to go to recover for COVID. So in that video, you saw those police literally kicking down, breaking this residence door into pieces, barging in to say that she needed to be transferred to this quarantine facility. And that woman is protesting, saying that she had received approval for a retest and that she needed to wait for that result to come back because, of course, she doesn't want to get sent to that quarantine facility. Now, we don't know, Julia, what ultimately ended up happening to this woman, but no surprise, it's fueling a lot of frustration and residents really see it as an, another example of the dysfunction of the lockdown in Shanghai. Many have been locked in their homes for more than a month now, and as the days drag on, anxiety grows. 
And all of this as Beijing continuing to ramp up restrictions in the capital. They're effectively shutting down the city's biggest district, Taoyang, which is home to a lot of key business and diplomatic areas. They're suspending transportation there. They're telling people to work from home. This is as the capital has also indefinitely extended the closure of large entertainment venues, as well as banning in restaurant dining. So Beijing trying to desperately avoid the failures of that lockdown in Shanghai. It's a vital point, Selena. Well made. It's not COVID anymore. It's what happens afterwards and the handling of it. Selena Wang, thank you, as always. South Korea and Japan say North Korea has fired a ballistic missile off its eastern coast. It flew around 500 kilometers before falling into the sea. This is Pyongyang's first launch since Kim Jong-un pledged to further develop its nuclear arms. CNN's Will Ripley joins us now from Taipei. Well, it may be the first since then, but it's the 14th launch, I believe, this year. They well and truly have ramped up the number of launches that they're carrying out. I think it'll only be a matter of time, Julia, before we get to 14. This is actually technically the 13th mm. weapons test of the year, but still that number is more than 2020 and 2021 combined. There was also a failed test uh, back in March as well, a missile that they believed they tried to launch, but but it blew up shortly after takeoff. This one, that was not the case. You mentioned how uh, far it traveled, uh, 470 kilometers or so, uh, landing in the waters outside of Japan's exclusive economic zone at a maximum altitude, Julia, of, of more than... Uh, 780 kilometers. That's, you know, basically almost 500 miles above uh, the Earth, which which puts this missile potentially in ICBM, intercontinental ballistic missile range. Now, we won't know for sure what kind of missile North Korea claims they launch until their state media publishes a news report and photos that usually happens about 24 hours after the launch. So we'll certainly be looking uh, in the early evening hours, Eastern time, early morning hours here in the region to see if the uh, the Roding Sinmu newspaper publishes any images of this. Uh, and gives more details. But if this is an ICBM, this, of course, would be uh, yet another major provocation for North Korea. They tested an ICBM uh, back on March the 24th. It was the first test of a weapon that big in more than four years, Julia. The question, why is Kim doing this? Why is he vowing to grow his nuclear arsenal? Is he plotting something? Well, Every indication I've had talking to analysts and also my trips to North Korea is that, no, these weapons are for deterrence to try to prevent the United States from moving in, uh, much like Russia has moved into Ukraine. Ironically, North Korea believes that the United States could do that if they gave up their nukes. And so they say these weapons are for deterrence, but that they're not afraid, Julia, to use them if they feel provoked. Hmm. And that's the challenge. Well, good job. I've got you tracking this accurately for me. Thank you for that. Will Ripley in Taipei there. Great to have you with us. Okay, across to the United States now, tempers on both sides of the political aisle continue to flare over a Supreme Court draft opinion that was leaked late Monday. It shows the court may be poised to overturn law that protects abortion rights nationwide. Some critics say striking down Roe versus Wade could impact other civil rights laws. Others argue the breach could damage the court's integrity. Johnny Depp's ex-wife, Amber Heard, is expected to testify soon in a courtroom in Virginia. Depp is suing Heard for $50 million, saying she falsely accused him of committing domestic violence. Heard is countersuing. The judge denied Heard's motion to dismiss the case yesterday after Depp's attorneys rested their case. And straight ahead, weapons, weapons and more weapons. That was what Ukraine wanted from the West. Germany's finance minister on Berlin's response. And drones are such a game changer for Ukraine that people are devoting songs to them and naming pets after them. I speak to the CEO behind the Switchblade Kamikaze drone. That's coming up. Stay with us.
Welcome back. As the EU unveils more sanctions on Russia, including an oil embargo, the focus now shifts to May 9th and what Putin may decide to do to mark Victory Day, adding pressure on the West to provide more vital weaponry. That, of course, has been a challenge for Germany. Earlier this week, in my exclusive interview with Finance Minister Christian Lindner, I asked him if Berlin's relative restraint was endangering the security of Ukraine, Germany and NATO. We don't feel pushed by our allies and, and our partners. Um, I don't feel any, any feeling of being uh, pushed, uh, frankly. Uh, we are cooperating very closely with uh, our partners, partners in NATO and G7 and European Union. Um, Germany is doing what others are doing, not less, not more at the moment because we need this uh, very close cooperation because we are threatened by um, a nuclear uh, power um, uh, that uh, Russia still is. On the other hand, we can supply Ukraine with um, um, uh, military uh, equipment um, by um, uh, using the the um, equipment um, from Sov- former Soviet uh, Union uh, Union origins in Europe, and uh, we are strengthening uh, these um, uh, partnerships. And well, the uh, key priority for us is to uh, stay together with the US, with our uh, NATO uh, allies, and we do what they do. We uh, seek for close cooperation um, in supporting Ukraine when it comes to military supplies and and economically. And we share the the perspective that Ukraine has to win this war because they are fighting not only for for, uh, their right to choose their uh, way in the future, they are fighting for our common values as liberal democracies. What does it mean if they don't, Minister, if Ukraine doesn't win this war? Um, they will win this war and Putin won't win this war. Uh, Putin achieved only one thing. He brought the liberal democracies closer together in the G7, in NATO, and in European Union. And um, I would be happy if this is the the lasting achievement uh, of Putin, bringing the liberal democracies together and to open a path for Ukraine in the close partnership to European Union and um, uh, other members of uh, the League of Liberal Democracies in the world. And as a minister, finally, are you on a personal crusade to end Germany's indirect funding of this war and to end its reliance on Russian energy? Well, it is a um, very complex question and... uh, it's um, uh, very difficult uh, to to answer it um, only um, left or right. 
Mm. Um, our advantage in this, this uh, tension uh, with Russia in the uh, time of a terrible war in Ukraine, uh, and the only responsibility for this war is, um, is uh, uh, Putin. The only one who is responsible is uh, Putin. It's very, very difficult to answer your question only one way, left, right. I'm convinced um, our economic strength is an advantage in this situation. We are stronger than Russia, than Putin's Russia is. And it would not be responsible to risk our strengths as an advantage in comparison uh, to Russia. We need this economic strength to support Ukraine and to uh, support Ukraine after the war, the, the war when it comes to building up uh, the country and uh, to lead Ukraine or to invite Ukraine to a close partnership uh, to European Union. More to come. Stay with CNN. Just ringing on Wall Street, all the major averages advancing for a third straight session, even as the Federal Reserve gets set to raise rates by half a percentage point later today. The Fed, of course, though, not the only central bank pulling economic support to contain inflation spikes. India central bank announcing almost half a percentage point rate hike today. Australia also raising rates for the first time in more than a decade. And the Bank of England also set to raise rates for the fourth straight time tomorrow. In earnings, Starbucks results holding up well in the face of inflationary pressures. Shares, as you can see, higher by some 6.8% after the firm beat on sales. That said, they did pull their full year guidance due to uncertainty over China. Chinese sales falling more than 20% last quarter due to the COVID lockdowns. And a reminder of our top story today, the EU discussing a sixth round of sanctions against Moscow, including a proposal to ban Russian oil. EU Commission President Ursula von der Leyen saying Putin must pay a high price. And in Mariupol, Ukraine, the mayor says new battles have broken out at the Avzovstal plant, where many civilians remain trapped. Meanwhile, Ukrainian officials say more evacuations are underway today. And also strong words from Pope Francis, the pontiff, warning the leader of the Russian Orthodox Church not to become, quote, Putin's altar boy. Now, Ukraine has released a new video of drone strikes on at least two military positions on the Russian-occupied Snake Island. The island was one of the first targets taken by Russians. Now drones are helping Ukraine fight back. Drones are a key part of military aid packages being sent to Ukraine by the West. Among them is the Switchblade Kamikaze drone. It's made by Air Environment, the leading drone supplier to the U.S. military. Its Switchblade drones come in two sizes, the Switchblade 300 light and can carry be carried in a backpack and has a 15-minute flying range. The bigger Switchblade 600 can fly for up to 40 minutes and can take out tanks and armoured vehicles. The firm has also won a $19 million worth of U.S. defence contracts to provide reconnaissance drones to Ukraine. Joining us to discuss is Wahid Nawabi. He's chairman, president and CEO of Air Environment. Wahid, fantastic to have you on the show with us. Um, just explain why drones have become so pivotal in Ukraine's defence against uh, the Russian invasion. Good to be with you, Julia. Uh, Switchblade is a new and disruptive class of missiles called loitering missiles. 
And these missiles have very unique features, uh, unlike any other missile category in its uh, history. Uh, first and foremost, you can launch it without having a target already identified. You can go away from the launch site within minutes so you can disappear. It'll fly uh, 10 times further than a Javelin, the Switchblade 600, for example. And then you can look for the target and you almost have a little bit less than an hour to look and loiter to find the right target. And once the operator designates the target, the computer system and the highly sophisticated sensors on board essentially do, does the rest. And then the uh, operator can designate the target and then switchblade is extremely, extremely precise and lethal. And it also has another patent pending technology, which allows you to actually wave off and regret or come out of that mission all the way till the last few seconds of the mission. This is unheard of in any other class of missile. And that's why drones or kamikaze drones, as they refer to, loitering missiles like switchblade has become so, so important in this conflict. I mean, it looks like you're, you're changing the direction and making decisions in real time there. How easy is it perhaps to try and shoot them down or in, in some way disrupt them via cyber technology? So it is extremely difficult, if not even impossible. These mm. drones are electrically powered. They have very, very low radar signatures. They travel low, lower speeds relative to other rocket launch missiles. They can loiter and their electric motors on them. So the ability for the adversary or enemy to detect them or even identify them is extremely low. Uh, shooting them down is even more difficult. And we do not know a single case in the history of Switchblade for decade plus that any of these missiles have been ever shot down from the sky. Then, and their efficacy is incredibly, incredibly unique. Uh, you're talking a missile that has software and algorithms that you can pinpoint at the angle in which direction and what altitude you want to hit the target. And if you don't like it, you can, as an operator, you can always go back out, loiter, and come back from a different angle, a different time, and a different method of achieving the same outcome. Wow, I think is my response to that. Um, can you give us a sense of numbers? How many have already been provided in terms of the, the 300, the smaller and the 600? And Wahid, how many could you provide hypothetically, assuming the supply chain holds up? Because I'm imagining when I'm looking at this kind of technology, microprocessors, supply chain challenges today also surely must feature into what you can produce and what you can provide in terms of numbers. Does this kind of technology need to be uh, uh, segregated and, and you prioritized if we want to provide more? Absolutely. Uh, so the first question is the U.S. military has publicly stated that they have so far uh, provided hundreds of these uh, switchblade 300 and 600. Um, I'm not in a position to disclose the details because of the safety and security of our customers and their missions. Uh, we are working directly with the State Department, with the, uh, with the Pentagon and with the White House on helping them uh, equip the Ukrainians with more of these. Uh, I've also been in touch with the ambassador of Ukraine, with the military attache, with the minister of defense of Ukraine, who would like to have thousands of these because they know how unique and how disruptive this missile is. Besides its ability to take out the target with high precision from long standoff distances and with incredible, incredible efficacy, it is also something that it actually affects the psyche of the warfighter on your enemy side because it's a missile you can't see. You can't tell where it's coming from. You can't detect it. You cannot hear it. All of that really, really creates havoc 
in the minds and morale of the troops if you are the adversary. So in this regard, they would like thousands of these. And in terms of your last question, we have the capacity to manufacture thousands of these, a dedicated manufacturing site. You're right here in the United States. These are designed and manufactured on the U.S. However, we do need help with two things. One, expedited contracting from the U.S. DOD to be able to procure these and provide these to our customers. And two, priority orders. There are different levels of priority within the U.S. defense industry uh, or organization for priority of orders. A DO or DX order will put you on the top of the supply chain. Since we use the most advanced microprocessors and semiconductors and microelectronics, we do need priority because some of the components on these devices, they're made by the millions. However, the supply is increasingly in high demand, and we need priority to, the, to produce these faster. However, the production capacity that we have is really, really significant. We can manage that quite well, but we need help with expedited contracts with higher degree of priority, and we need help with supply chain prioritization so we can get the parts to make more of these faster. Got it. It's an important message to be sending. Um, I can't help it as we're having this discussion reminding myself, and, and I'm sure many of our viewers will be thinking the same, um, we're talking about the, the manufacture of, of technology that is being used potentially to, to kill people. Whoever's side and the wrongs and the rights of the situation is um, Wahid. And so I do think it's important for us to understand and to, to get your sense of that, but also to understand your story, which is quite astonishing because you were born in, in Afghanistan. You were forced to flee as a 14-year-old boy, you had three sisters who you personally, as a, as a child, man of 14, managed to get safely from Afghanistan to India. And I, I've, I've read your story and it's, it's quite breathtaking what you managed to do as a, as a child. So, so your journey to this point has been very long and, and this kind of situation is very personal to you. And I, I do think it's important for our, our viewers to understand that too. And, and the responsibility that you have today. Absolutely, Julia. So uh, first and foremost, uh, the we take the decision of what we make and design and provide as an organization very seriously, a moral responsibility. Switchblade is uh, the least collateral damage missile system that I've ever known and it's ever known in the entire industry of missiles. Uh, the fact that you can pinpoint it, you can wave it off and regret and come back out it literally saves lives. It has, in the last decade, saved thousands and thousands and thousands of, of innocent lives. And it actually is incredibly effective in taking out the adversaries, the bad guys. So this is the best option you would have to defend yourself, in our view. And that's why we're really focused and committed to this product. And that's why it's so disruptive. In terms of uh, personal, of course, this is business and this is a moral responsibility that we all have in the West and around the world to protect our, uh, our freedoms, our values and what we stand for. But I did leave Afghanistan in the early 80s as a 14 year old with three younger sisters alone, fled the country to uh, because of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. The pain and the suffering that the Afghans have gone through for the last four decades started with the Russian invasion of Afghanistan. And we all know what happened in Afghanistan. And I'm a firm believer that this, the Ukrainians are going to prevail uh, and uh, they are going to fight just like as hard as the Afghans did. 
and we're here to support them and we defend them and we stand by our country, by our allies and with the Ukrainian people. I have seen it firsthand. I mean, I left with nothing. Literally, my life changed in a matter of two days. It took me 48 days by many, many different means to get out of Afghanistan through Pakistan into India and ran into my, my parents in New Delhi in a bus station. And so came to United States and, uh, you know, life has very mysterious ways of uh, working itself out in coincidences. And, uh, you know, but that's just my personal story. And it's not the most uh, remarkable one whatsoever. There are millions of other stories like mine in Afghanistan today, in the last four decades, and also in Ukraine today, and many other parts of the world. And we as countries who are free, who enjoy these freedoms and have the ability to help, we need to do this as a moral and ethical responsibility more than anything else. Wahid, great to have you on the show. Wahid Nawabi there, Chairman, President and CEO of Air Environment, sir, and we'll stay in touch. Thank you. Good to be with you, Julia. Good to have you. Coming up. Despite challenges caused by Russia's war on Ukraine, Maersk delivering its best earnings quarter. The CEO of the shipping giant, next. Welcome back. Shipping giant Maersk posting a record profit in the first quarter, despite taking a $700 million hit to its earnings tied to Russia. The company's net profit more than doubled to $6.8 billion. Revenues jumped 55% as container freight costs continue to rise. Last week, Maersk raised its outlook for the full year. And I'm pleased to say joining us now, the CEO of Maersk, Søren Sko. Sen, fantastic to have you on the show as always, and congrats on another great quarter. We'll talk about that in a second, but I do want to hone in on on what's going on in, in Russia. I think my takeaway from this is uh, it's difficult to manage at the best of times. It's difficult to exit a business, and you're being incredibly conservative and in taking the value of those assets down to zero in the interim. Yes, we, we, we decided quite early uh, after Russia invaded that we had to get out of Russia. We, we simply cannot... Uh, continue to serve and provide critical uh, uh, infrastructure for, for for a country that is invading its uh, its neighbor. Uh, uh, so so uh, we just just started to unwind our business, and we had our last uh, ship call to Russia earlier this week. So we're now completely out of Russia. Uh, the assets we have in the country, we have written down to zero, and we are in the process of uh, of, of selling them uh, as best we possibly can in the in the coming uh, months and quarters. Are you worried about those assets being confiscated, taken? Um, that we don't think so. Uh, the biggest uh, single asset we have uh, is is a, st- a 30 point, 30, 31% stake in in a company that owns ports in in Russia. That's actually a, a con- company that is domiciled in Cyprus, and uh, so 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 we don't necessarily think that uh, they will be confiscated uh, at at this point, at least. You also said that you're trying to do this responsibly, um, and I do think that's important, and it ties to your employees there. How are you handling the situation for them too? Because that is also delicate. Well, first, let me say that we do not hold our employees and colleagues in Russia responsible for the actions of their president. Mm-hmm. So we want to do this in, in, a, in, a, in a responsible manner. Uh, about a third of our office-based uh, colleagues in, in Russia, we have actually offered jobs outside Russia. And, and, and for the remaining, uh, 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 we have, we have um, 
uh, you know, provided uh, quite, uh, if you will, generous uh, severance uh, severance packages to to hopefully tide them over until they get a better situation. Yeah, and I know you've also um, been helping, I believe, GM and Ford ship uh, vehicles, transport vehicles to Ukraine to assist with evacuations too, which I, I wanted to, to note for our viewers. Um, let's talk about your broader numbers now as well. I mean, I mentioned that you'd raised guidance for the full year. You also talked about perhaps a stabilisation of shipping costs in the second half of this year, or at least the presumption. Is that based on bottlenecks, perhaps still challenges in that regard, or is it based on perhaps slowing growth or both? Well, we have, we actually have quite low visibility to the second second half. There are many factors at play. Uh, we do expect demand uh, to come down, driven by a number of factors. Uh, but certainly, if we look at consumer uh, confidence index, if you look at uh, PMI numbers, uh, they are trending uh, clearly down. We have inflation, and in China, we also have a very uh, uh, you know tough uh, Corona. Uh, policy where where uh, even small outbreaks are, are responded to by by hard hard lockdown measures, which also has the potential uh, to to reduce volume. So we see the the likelihood of demand coming down, uh, and and that will that will ease uh, help ease congestion, uh, and and potentially already from the beginning of the of the of the second half. But but that part is more an assumption for our guidance than it is prediction because it's really hard to tell. Yeah, of course. How dramatic is that slowdown, that sort of demand pulse that you're seeing, particularly in in the China region? Because you, of everyone, I think, perhaps have the best sense of that, given given the number of ports and port access that, that you have there. Because I know one of the big questions we're asking here is whether, as we see central banks start to raise interest rates and, and clamp down on some of the pricing pressures, the risk is that perhaps they go too far and, and create a recession or a recessionary environment. How concerned are you by that? Is that, is that a risk on your radar? Well, I'm, I'm not a macroeconomist, but, but we clearly also in, in Maersk see that there's some risk of a, of, a, of a recession in 2023 or perhaps even already in the very last quarter of this, this year. But it's, it's only some risk. It's not a, it's not a sure thing. We, we clearly see all these drivers of demand trending uh, negative. So recession risk, uh, consumer confidence, PMI uh, confidence. Uh, at, at the same time, uh, supply side constraints in China, be, potentially because of uh, because of Corona, and and then finally, I, I think most of us probably have shopped more more goods during the pandemic than than we need, and and we can't buy any more furniture or new uh, new, uh, new TV screens or or whatnot. So so we probably see, see the risk on the on the demand side uh, in the coming uh, in the coming six to twelve months in 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 our business. Yes, guilty on the over-acquiring uh, point that, that you just made there. And, and you may not be a macroeconomist in, uh, in your book, but you've got a real feel. So um, you, you've valued more highly on this show, I, I promise you. So great to chat to you, sir. Congrats again on another great quarter. The CEO of Musk there. Thanks for having Thank me. you for joining us. Okay, coming up, the Fed strikes back. Jedi Jerome Powell aiming his lightsaber at inflation on this May the 4th. Today's interest rate decision not so far, far away. Stay with us. So today is May the 4th, better known as Star Wars Day for fans, a key day for the inflation wars too. The US Federal Reserve hopes the 4th is with them. 
as members get set to raise rates by the largest amount in decades and begin the process of winding down their multi-trillion dollar balance sheet. U.S. stocks pretty volatile in early trade as we await the central bank decision and the first in-person news conference from Fed Chair Powell since the pandemic began. Rahel Solomon joins us now, has her own lightsaber ready. Great to have you uh, have you with us. We are expecting him to raise interest rates by half a percentage point today, but that's not really the question. The question is, can they hike interest rates without getting a death star outcome here for those that know, and that is creating a recession. What does history tell us, Rahel? Julia, it's a great point. We haven't seen rates go up this much since 2000, some 22 years ago. But yes, the question on everyone's mind is, can they do it? Can they sort of achieve a soft landing, as it's called, raise inflation or raise rather rates without triggering a recession? Well, Jerome Powell, the Fed chair, says that history provides some grounds for optimism. Bill Dudley, however, the former president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, not so optimistic. Take a listen. The chances of pulling off are very, very low because they have to push up the unemployment rate. And in the past, when you've pushed up the unemployment rate, you've almost never been able to avoid a full-fledged recession. So in a speech in late March, Fed Chair Powell pointed to three episodes that pointed or provided some grounds for optimism. He pointed to 1965, 1984 and 1994 as examples of when the Fed was able to raise rates and not trigger a recession. But Julia, even those dates are in dispute with some like Piper Sandler and others saying that really only 1994 is a true example of a soft landing. Listen, whether it's One example in recent history or three, Julia, I think everyone can agree this is going to be a challenging landing for the Fed in this environment that we find ourselves in. In fact, even Powell in that late speech, that late March speech, saying that, listen, no one expects that bringing about a soft landing will be straightforward in the current context. Very little is straightforward in the current context, adding my colleagues and I will do our very best to succeed in this challenging task. And Julia, may the fourth for sure be with him. Yeah. And everybody else as we hang on tight, quite frankly. Um, Rahel, great job. Thank you. Are you a Star Wars fan, by the way? I can't say that I am. And I am just ready for the Twitter hate mail now that I have admitted that. (laughs) Thank you. All right. And finally, from drones to dogs on this show and another sign of how Western allies are helping Ukrainians defend their country. Police dog trainers in the United States are providing body armor for dogs working in dangerous areas with police officers, combat engineers and border guards. Ukrainian officials say the vests don't interfere with the dog's movement, but protect them from debris, weapons and bullets. They're very brave animals and I salute them. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for Chasley CNN. Connect the world with Becky Anderson. Up next. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.